Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Dan DeLion, a forager, teacher, and permaculture practitioner from New Jersey who runs the excellent website returntonature.us. During our conversation today, Dan and I discuss the intersection between foraging and gardening, cultivated foods and wild human nutrition, and how we can bring about a slow revolution by trading our time and money for our well-being and that of our community in a way that starves the more destructive elements of our culture of the nutrients that it needs. That sounds like a lot to cover, and it is, but the pace is a steady and even one thanks to Dan's measured and thoughtful consideration of each point that we cover. Rather than take up your time here in the beginning, let's go ahead and get to the conversation, and I'll join you again afterwards with some thoughts and updates. Then if you're ready, we can go ahead and get this conversation started. If you want to give us a little bit of your background, biography, how you came to do what you're doing, and we can take the conversation from there. So my name is Dan, and uh, I live in central New Jersey, and basically as I started to... uh, open my heart to the wild of nature, I began to look for mushrooms and uh, start identifying them. And I actually became a self-taught mushroom forager. And uh, once I ate my first mushroom from the woods, my whole life was changed. I felt a deep sense of self-empowerment that I didn't realize humans could access. And from there, basically, my whole journey has been just to try to get to know uh, plants, mushrooms, animals, uh, the natural world in a much deeper sense, and uh, that really begin, began my path. And so um, I teach a lot of classes and workshops throughout the year through uh, my website, returntonature.us, and uh, basically just trying to really go deeper and deeper with uh, kind of ecological uh, symbiosis and, and try to find the pathway uh, that humans may be able to embark on in the next, you know, 10 to 30 years specifically that can really help us transition out of the old, dead cultural mentality that we see and get into something that's obviously more sustainable. So that's basically it in a nutshell. And you and I were first put in touch together, oh, it's probably been over a year now, and traded some messages about setting up this interview. And through that, we were talking about the intersection between permaculture in the wild and some rewilding as well as foraging and agriculture with all those kinds of threads on the table where would you like to lead us in this conversation well what i've been particularly interested in as i as a forager who's trying to predominantly get my caloric intake from the wild Um, And working with permaculture farms and farmers, I've really seen that there's some really great crossover and yet certain plants that I might really uh, enjoy get kind of sacrificed in a sort of permaculture or sometimes uh, especially in a biodynamic setting. So I really am curious uh, to sort of engage in the discussion between how can we resolve this seeming duality and it's been really interesting because as I was, uh, as we were discussing that I kind of got into a conversation with many uh, people on my Facebook page as far as uh, is there a duality, is there not a duality, there's zone four and all this stuff and yet I still feel like um, perhaps the idea that living on a fully foraged diet engaging in most or all of our caloric intake from a foraged landscape requires a next level of of hands-off farming and essentially what I've realized is that it's almost like doing the perennials first and I feel like in permaculture the reason that that's not done is because people still need to rely on annuals to pay their mortgage or pay the land lease or whatever is going on. Um, So I'd love to uh, get into some of that. And I'm so curious about just continued conversation about these topics. What you said about annuals, when I was interviewing Bryce Ruddock, that was one of the pieces that he brought up was the need in a permaculture system, especially one on small scale, to be productive, that we would need to ensure that we have a lot of those starchy staple crops, which oftentimes he doesn't see in permaculture designs. Even with food forests and things, there's a focus on fruit, uh, but not you know these long-storing tubers or nuts like chestnuts or things like that because of that long-term production cycle, 
when focusing on perennials? Do you see there being a need in the education of this kind of work to look at that long-term growth? Or do you feel that foraging plays a better place to make that transition? You know, it's an interesting question, and in a lot of ways, forage, the concept of foraging can play a great role in that transition because the starches should be there. The calories should be there. Now, we also have kind of a damaged ecosystem, and so something like ground nuts, you know, Apios americana, could be a, a beautiful staple all over the place, and yet uh, there's not a lot of it around. So I think... As we move through this place, we're going to have to really, you know, get grounded in where's the fats coming from, where's the carbohydrates coming from. Essentially, from a survival perspective, those are the things that are hard to get. There's a lot of fruit out there. There's a lot of greens out there. I mean, you could harvest dandelions, you know, until you turn green. But as far as getting carbohydrates and fats, these are essentially the hardest things to come by in the ecosystem and yet do require an initial investment. So that's where I do understand the permaculture need to first sort of go towards uh, having monetary stability such as growing, you know, the, the mizuna lettuce or whatever, um, the whole, f you know, farm to restaurant style. But I do see that there's an alternative potential in there, which is basically, uh, you know, kind of going Johnny Appleseed on it and figuring out what sort of uh, perennial plants can we introduce that are native, that aren't necessarily going to create a long-term, uh, more damaging scenario in the ecosystem? And what can we do in the meantime? So actually, I'm staring out the window right now, and I'm looking at Smilax. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people know those as greenbrier or catbrier, or the things that the pricker things that cut them all up when they uh, ambush through the woods. But there's supposedly tubers under there somewhere. And it's so funny because people are so inconvenienced by this plant, and yet um, there are carbohydrate sources within many of the Smilax species, and yet. Unfortunately, I have never been able to find any of them, even harvesting every season. I've tried just about everything, but I haven't hit it. But I can go on websites, you know, very easily and people are like, oh, look at these great carbohydrates, five, six pounds of wonderful starch. So um, and then we also have like kudzu. We've got all these different starch sources. So I think, uh, you know, we got to get to that. What you were just talking about there with kudzu and some of these other things that are in the environment is in the interview with Katrina Blair, talking about harvesting all these greens and things that appear in our garden as something that we can kind of forage on the go from disturbed land. What do you see as the role of some of these introduced plants? Should we be using them as food and doing the best to manage them in place or would you rather see them being replaced with non-invasive natives? Well, you know, I take a sort of very interesting or perhaps quirky perspective where I think it's obvious to me that the most non-native invasives are European people who came here um, so we've we've brought these plants in our in our lineage and so we really can't see them as good or bad per se and there's a lot of times trying to attack sort of um, you know invasive plants and yes I'm not a proponent of telling people to seed bomb invasive plants because biodiversity is an issue and I and I frame it all with biodiversity yet it's very easy to create an economy an infrastructure based on eating invasive plants and I think that really is just the most sane possibility that I see out of this mess with a combination of eating as well as medicine making and that's another angle I'd like to bring to the uh, permaculture topic so that said I think there's really an interface between what it seems like I, I really appreciated Michael Pollan's kind of idea that like, hey, you know, we think we're using plants, but actually, what if the plants are using us, you know? And this sort of flipped uh, a lot of thinking perspectives around. And by playing with this idea, what I've come into realization with is 
these plants are here to work in an interface with humans. They're actually here to work with us. And if we can really get the understanding of the ecological niche that they bring, as well as the caloric or vitamin or uh, substance niche in our bodies or the, or the chemistry for medicine, we can really understand how to uh, work with them, whether it be a food, a medicine, or something that's fodder, or something that hey I'm gonna I'm gonna reduce in this environment so that I can produce more of something else um, so I think it's a mix but either way if you're eating them you're creating you're basically doing invasive plant management <laughs> and redefining the whole economy in the meantime I mean every step of vegetable that you get from your backyard is obviously not something that's trucked around shipped around brought from China you know, with diesel, all that stuff. But, you know, in truth, greens are easy. And this is where this brassica prominent kind of mentality that we have, you know, we really do need to work with carbs. Uh, you know, grains are hard to produce. And then we're, we're so anti-monoculture. And yet, many of us still rely on those monoculture grains to get a predominance of our caloric intake. I don't know if I have the number correct, but I've heard it's something like we depend on seven or 11 crops for the majority of our calories worldwide. Yeah. So, I mean, the good thing in, in permaculture and foraging and sort of these rewilding wildcrafting is we are diversifying. And that to me is the main message by studying ecology, by studying nature, by asking the right questions. It really seems to say, Oh, if you want to survive, create biodiversity. And we see this really from the ground up, from a chemical level, from a level of bacteria, from a level of species. Uh, everything is really touting the message of biodiversity. It also sounds like with what you're saying that we need a better understanding of not only the natural world in order to implement something like this effectively, but also a better understanding of human needs and human nutrition and with that health and medicine in order to be able to locate these foods that we need, particularly like the fats and starches as opposed to what we normally grow, all these sugars and greens in the garden. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I feel like it's a great empowerment. Just like I was saying, as I ate my first mushroom uh, wild out of the woods, very carefully, very, very methodically. It gives a certain sense of, it's obvious to all of us at this point that the closer we get to our food source, the more we feel very empowered. And we get this strong sense of self-empowerment and that sort of self-reliance or human instinct kicks in. And I truly believe that really the underlying basis is that human instinct getting engaged and developed. So whether it's uh, watching deer runs in the forest or whether it's birding or whether it's tracking or whether it's learning wild plants, what we are essentially doing is doing a game of testing our intuition. Uh, there's a red-tailed hawk right outside of the window that I'm staring at right now. So um, testing our intuition and then making hypothesis and then learning more. So this is one of the great things I try to teach about awakening our senses, coming to our senses, essentially. That idea of coming to the senses and empowerment, I think about my background before I came to permaculture and still learning through this process, is how much I felt incapable in many of the things that I did. Even though I grew up as a child being taught all these different skills, how to cook, how to work wood and everything else, there came this certain point in my childhood where when I had decided upon a career, society, my family, everybody around me pushed me in that direction of my career that that was what I should do, that that should be my specialty. And as that happened, these layers of self that had been built up on me, had been built up in me through my community got stripped away until all I was left with was this specialty. In coming to permaculture and having these conversations with people such as yourself about wild foods and medicine and taking care of oneself, it really does reawaken this interest in the world. It feels childlike again, not only seeing the world through my children's eyes as they grow up with me, but also being reminded of how I once was and feeling 
capable again to go out and to pick violets with my children and sit and eat them, to harvest roots to roast. And like I've barely begun that process of reawakening. And for people who are just beginning on this road, if this was their first time ever hearing anything about wild foods, rewilding in permaculture, how would you recommend someone go about rekindling this connection with nature and the world around them and finding this sense of empowerment? Yeah, well, I really love this question. And as a teacher of plants now for maybe seven, eight years, um, I really get a lot of sort of time and ability to watch people and observe people's kind of cootie factors and what sort of blocks them from the engagement. And a lot of it comes really from simple ideas. Um, I hear a lot, I'd love to learn about mushrooms, but I'm not, I'm afraid of killing myself. And that just becomes preposterous because you could learn all you can about mushrooms, but really the issue is eating them. <laughs> you will not poison yourself by learning to identify a mushroom. You will poison yourself by eating the wrong mushroom. So therefore, if one does not eat the wrong mushroom, which is something that you can actually help, then there really is no harm. There's another idea even with mushrooms that if you touch a poisonous mushroom, you via osmosis get poison. That is complete lunacy. There's no truth to that. You could juggle all the amanitas you want and nothing will happen through your skin. So this is a big misconception. Um, but that rule also applies to plants because if you're trying to learn to forage, you first have to start with learning to look on the ground and discern grass from everything else out there. So what happens, I think, most is that people don't understand what it means to be a beginner. And they try to get into filling their salad bowl, which is basically a recipe for self-harm. <laughs> it's not going to turn out too good if you go out there hungry and you bring a field guide and you just start nibbling on plants. That was very much not my process, and I would suggest that all the people who are proficient foragers out there were much more systematic. And so what I've actually realized in this is that this is that childlike wonder that you mentioned. This is actually the basis, the core basis of science. So if we go beyond science to the indigenous people, the indigenous mind, what we really find is that they were systematically practicing with each new plant. It is a very scientific process. So, you know, you, you, you engage first in your sense of sight before you engage in your sense of taste. And if we could really understand, again, how to engage in the natural world in a way where my number one thing is to not eat you, my number one thing is to learn from you, then I feel like some instinctual process starts to develop and that can kick in. One of the lessons that I was taught when going through courses on formal education and how to teach is a lot about how to ask the right questions. And what you just said there about, I'm not here to eat you, I'm here to learn from you, is a really powerful place to start with foraging, especially when you pair that with your other statement about not, you know, rushing out to fill the salad bowl, but working methodically. What is your process like in learning about a plant? Do you start with a field guide or do you go on a walk and look for interesting plants and work your way back? Could you step us through that? Well, yes. And uh, there are basically several ways I do things. And basically, it comes down to the sort of identification through a field guide method versus more of the fact that I've done enough reading about so many plants uh, that some, some name comes into my mind. And so I'll talk first about the field guide aspect. So if you're a beginner, I don't really recommend the idea that you're going to go buy a field guide and you would flip through the pages and out, be outside and really learn to identify a plant to bring home for soup that evening. Uh, it's not very likely, but what one can do is have those field guides and in their downtime or while they're eating or whatever, just let those patterns of the plants or the mushrooms absorb into your subconscious. Uh, try to start making a catalog, a database of plants. 
Um, that's very much how I did things with mushrooms, looking through field guides, just really appreciating the colors, the textures, the different forms. Um, once you get that database, then it's really much more helpful to then go out and you start to try to just take pictures and then bring your uh, pictures back and you could put them all on your computer and you could start to kind of categorize them in any way you know. And eventually what will happen is you'll start to be able to play kind of like Pictionary or Guess Who. The picture sometimes will start to be close to the plant or the mushroom that you're looking at in the field guide. So this is kind of one way of familiarizing yourself through your database, through your internal database, which needs to be reawakened. Uh, essentially, it's like taking uh, a million pictures of different plants. So in that sense, I'm sort of separating the idea of go out on a walk with beginner's mind, just look around and say, hmm, What's different than this? Oh, look at this leaf. What, what makes this leaf unique? Well, let me compare it to this other leaf. How would I describe their differences? And you start to develop the cataloging capacity to actually discern between what's commonly called as the wall of green. Because for everyone, at first, everything is grass. But once you really learn, there's a huge diversity. There's hundreds of plants there. But we'll never learn that if we don't learn to look with new eyes. So once we develop those new eyes and we start to practice after a while, what happens in my life often is I'll be staring at a new plant and a name will come into my mind and I'll be like, that's odd. I don't even know what I'm saying. And often I will look at it on my phone or get back to a computer and look at it and I will have been correct. And that does not mean if I get that experience that I go and eat it. That means that I'm developing a first level of relationship where I'm saying, hmm, I, I believe I'm recognizing you. And this is what I really would call instinct and intuition together after that database is built things start to happen from from a place which maybe most modern uh, mentalities or, or practices don't really have room for, which is sort of this almost telepathy with nature, which is more like we can call coincidences, but suddenly you'll be reading about a plant and then go outside and suddenly you'll trip and fall and it'll be right in front of your face. And this is what I really feel like is kind of the Lorax effect, which is that nature wants to teach this, this stuff. Uh, there's a drastic reduction in jobs of people who know how to forage and so she wants to really empower us to do that. It's my, this is my belief. But um, to get back to sort of, you know, the idea that First, we have to go out, we have to spend time, we have to look, we have to discern. And if you take a camera, you just take pictures, and you start to discern the differences between those leaves. And I think everything really starts from there. That small, slow solution builds over time until you kind of have this almost inherent knowledge that you've built up through practice and experience, cataloging the plants around you and referencing your field guides so that you become comfortable with these things. And then that's where your mind starts to make those connections between the book knowledge and the natural world. Yes. And also beyond comfortable, more there's also a level of respect and honor. And that level of honor starts to really guide us in the sense of I'm not going out there to rip stuff up. I don't know enough. I'm humbling myself. Please teach me because I don't know and I know this is lost wisdom and I'm really seeking to come back to something which is more sane. Um, so then you may find that you're just learning to be close to a plant versus put it in your mouth. And that is really where everything starts is in my own process, maybe I get an intuitive name, I go verify it. It's profound to me that I verified this plant, but I won't go eat it then. I will wait and I will wait till it happens again and I'll find that plant. And then I'll actually look around the area to see how 
abundant that plant is in that given area. And that's a number one thing is I don't want to harvest a plant that is rare in that situation and really cause harm or damage because a bunny can't go to the grocery store. So I have to really understand the consequences of my hands, my opposable thumb and and index finger, being able to pick the life of something changes a lot, a real lot. And that's another thing that we need the empowerment towards is understanding how we actually alter the ecosystem. Um, And then I will be with that plant for some months or some years and eventually will develop the ability to be uh, confident to know where the good patches are, which involves also learning what happened on that area. If somebody's been dumping pesticides or motor oil uh, or something like that, I'm not going to want to harvest there. So, you know, each relationship, just like we develop relationships with people, uh, needs to be developed slowly over time. And of course, that can be very supplemented with going to plant walks. And there are many great plant teachers who bring people on plant walks. And I highly recommend if anyone's interested to make that part of your process because they can help shortcut that. Uh, But don't let that shortcut your humbleness, your uh, inquisitiveness, and your careful harvesting. One of the things that I think about is that desire to run out and eat something. And we've walked through how to slow that down. In thinking about foraging, especially if we're going to integrate it more widely into our practices, how do you work with your students to encourage them to slow down? One of my concerns is, as you mentioned, you know, you go to a patch and you want to see how many of that plant is in the area to ensure that you harvest sustainably and appropriately. And one of my concerns from the outside, as I continue to learn more about wild plants and harvesting, is intensive foraging and teaching these skills and then having them be used in such a way that they wind up stripping the plants from an area. Yeah, this is definitely a big focus of my teaching style, which I don't really try to make money off of nature in the sense that I don't feel like it's my right to then go out there and over harvest and make really what's a couple dollars off of it. Um, So what I'm trying to see within myself and engage is what is my relationship to the ecosystem and how can I give more than I take. And so that's definitely infused in all of my teaching style is trying to understand how to make a reciprocal relationship because, you know, obviously to me, if we are going to find ourselves out of this sort of materialistic capitalist society, this paradigm that is really kind of sawing the limb we're sitting on, um, we're going to have to learn to give back as much or more than we're taking. And so really it's just a shift from a taking perspective to a symbiotic perspective, which really to me is the next level of uh, kind of the game that we're playing here. How can we give something for what we've taken? And so that can take many forms, such as if you're going to harvest from an area, providing some sort of food for the animals that will be there, or you know, making sure that we really need it and we'll we'll see that process through. So kind of never letting the wild food that we harvest or take from an area sit in a plastic bag in our uh, refrigerator until we remember it a month later and it's goop, you know, things like that, just to really start to stimulate this idea that, wow, if I don't become a caretaker for the ecosystem, then foraging too will just become another capitalistic exploitive endeavor and that will be like the final, <laughs> the final hurrah of the ecosystem, essentially. And this truly is what I feel like foraging becoming popularized needs to be mitigated too, is on helping people to understand that like we can't just make this another crude oil endeavor. When you talk about taking food in for the animals that are there and making sure that you use what you harvest, a pair of my past guests, Ben Wise and Wilson Alvarez, talked about restoring Eden. And that when they're working in like that zone four, to borrow from the permaculture lexicon, that they try to tend the wild, including, you know, if they're going to be harvesting roots or tubers to replant them to spread rhizomes and things like that. Do you engage in any of that kind of activity to tend the space that you're harvesting from? 
Definitely. It's it's an essential thing for me to try to give back, as I'm saying. So the example of I was just uh, camping in a little shack with a wood-burning stove in the winter and going on long walks and harvesting a lot of wintergreen leaves um, and making tea. So I basically drank a lot of wintergreen. In that, I found many berries. There are wintergreen berries, and they're delicious and tasty. And I probably ate about 10% of what I found out there, and I replanted probably about 50% of what I found out there. So just by that, I'm actually regenerating uh, the population that I'm taking from. Also with that is I'm not stripping off all the leaves of any one plant. I'm taking one leaf from this plant, one leaf from that plant, one leaf from that plant, and that's plenty for me. Um, so again, it's really this, if I needed to, to pay my mortgage on wintergreen leaves, then it would kind of force me to take more than maybe my instinct and my intuition felt, but to get my own medicine and to provide some of the medicine needs of my friends and family, uh, this, the regenerative techniques are definitely possible. And this is something that I'd like to see collectively that we all can discuss as a community is what are regenerative techniques of harvesting, whether it's wild food or whether it's even um, kale, I mean, you know, or uh, lettuce. In, in essence, what we have commercially is that they'll harvest the head of lettuce, right? But if we develop different practices such as harvesting the lower leaves, then we can see actually as we force the plant to bolt, we can get a lot more greens from it. So little things like that are going to be a very crucial step in kind of teaching the community together how to be more regenerative. To see this interface between the managed world and the foraged world, the gardened world and the foraged world, if you will, would you see a focus on, again, to borrow from the language of permaculture, a very intense zone one kind of garden? for people to grow a lot of their regular use foods from and then forage the rest? How do you envision a system like this functioning? Yeah, you know, this is the great question. And what I really feel like is in observing nature, one of the things that I get from nature is, you know, nature is really good at polycultures, you know, way better than I see anybody practicing it. So it's very interesting. In essence, nature is already trying to create polycultures. So, you know, when you plant tomatoes and the, you know, other plants come up in that, such as purslane, you know, that really makes a more complete meal. And so we need to really encourage that. And also I'd like to propose kind of blending the lines because I have a feeling that zone four, a lot of people don't really get there in their situations. So for example, uh, tomatoes in essence don't really like to be in, in say the Northeast. It's a little uh, difficult. They need a lot of watering. They need a lot of nurturing. They need a lot of care. However, you know, stinging nettle doesn't care. Uh, dandelions grow just fine. So what I think it's really going to be a matter of is starting to also trade off some of the greens that we're used to with annual harvest into sort of more perennial or at least more weedy types of plants, which tend themselves a lot better and also help the soil a lot better. You know, dandelions are, are profoundly helpful for the soil where something like tomatoes, just to use an example, are not necessarily as helpful for that same soil. So, you know, perhaps people can start to bring in uh, into zone one some of the things they might leave to zone four and really, oh, now I've got dandelions in my zone one and stinging nettle and lamb's quarters and uh, amaranth greens are my favorite green, one of my favorite greens out there you know the seeds are very difficult to harvest um, yet the greens are delicious if someone wanted to get started who are some of the authors or books that you would recommend for someone to first check out before going out and walking around and starting their catalog or to take with them if they wanted to go on a plant walk well great to try to make this a concise answer because there's I mean I have like hundreds of books you know 
but there is really uh, some great resources out there. So most people start with like the Peterson and Audubon field guides. Those are wonderful. I highly recommend them. Newcombs is great as well. The problem with the Peterson field guide of edible plants is there's a lot, there's a few significant mistakes in that book. So, you know, these are things to be careful for. It's always important in these endeavors to cross-reference. That's how we'll learn the most. So having many books to cross-reference. But aside from that, there are many great modern authors from Sam Thayer, Wildman Steve Brill, Arthur Haynes, Alita Meredith has a foraging book. And then Green Dean, eattheweeds.com, he's a great forager. Uh, he also has uh, links, and many of us foragers have put links of different foragers in different regions so that people can find others. And the internet is also a profound resource. If you uh, get more used to Latin, you can do a lot. Because if you Google search dandelions, 10 of the plants will be dandelions, and you'll also get like a Lego toy. So you have to be kind of discerning. And this is really uh, reduced quite well by learning some of the Latin and getting into the Latin. A lot less difficult stuff will start to pop up. And that was Sam Thayer recommended, as well as Arthur Haynes, that we cross-reference, especially when using the internet because of the mistakes that we can find. And I think about all my years as a Boy Scout and some of the plants that I was told that are now I misidentify because they were incorrect when I was taught them years ago. Yeah, so leaves of three, let them be is kind of a familiar mantra we've all heard. And of course, you know, I would like to replace that with something more like here's poison ivy and here's poison oak and let children actually learn to engage the ecosystem carefully instead of just giving them fear tactics, which eventually and essentially creates a wall, a barrier between nature and people. And this is something uh, we really need to erode to get to this place within ourselves again of oh I am nature this body is nature and even somehow this mind and this talking being inside is nature and this is something uh, we have to challenge very carefully and push back push back that comment about fear tactics makes me think about mushrooms as you mentioned earlier and all the myths that I was taught as a child that went with that and the fear of harvesting a wild mushroom and it was only just in the past couple of months when I'm reading about how few actual poisonous mushrooms there are in the United States that can kill you. Yes, there are some, but your actual risk from that is relatively low as long as you know what they are. Especially if you don't eat them, then you reduce risk to nothing. So it really is a matter of make sure that you really know what you're doing if you're going to consume anything, even if it's in the grocery store. This is the great empowerment that we're remembering. I mean, you know, no more microwave dinners and, and fast food. Like we're learning how to relocalize our food sources again. And along with that, the same laws, rules, so to speak, apply in going to the grocery store and being able to discern what's food and what's poison as going out in the forest and discerning what's food and what's poison. Uh, essentially, you know, in the grocery store, the things that will kill us there will just kill us a lot slower, you know, versus the things that are in the ecosystem. <laughs> but I love my bacon. Hey, bacon's fine. You know, there's lots of uh, permaculturists. Uh, they're growing pigs, that's for sure. Uh, I have a family member who does pasture-raised pork, and it's some of the best ham in the world. But I think about the difference between that ham and bacon that are being raised responsibly and then smoked in an old-style smokehouse with actual wood, as opposed to going to the grocery store and buying that kind of pink-looking bacon. And I forget who said it, but it's, you know, if your bacon looks pink in the package, it's because of all the chemicals that went into processing it. That should be kind of brown and kind of, you know, not something that you would normally associate with bacon if you've been buying from the grocery store for years. Yeah. I mean, this is where we all have to do whatever we can to to transform at least our own system um, and just leave that old system dollar by dollar by dollar. And we can totally do it. And we are doing it. I have more confidence than ever. And as this, you know, the Internet just keeps spreading information and as people keep eating real foods, you know, that that debate, that conversation of, oh, well, it's too expensive 
you know, Michael Pollan said again, uh, you can either pay now or pay later. And I feel like we're at a great crux of realizing that, you know, all those doctor's bills essentially comes from all the chemicals and all the problems that are in all the foods. So as we transition out of that, most people will realize that their dollars are more going into a regenerative system instead of dealing with their symptoms of illness because of the food they're eating. As this is relatively early in 2015, as we record this, just going through and doing our taxes at the end of the year, as many of us will be doing soon, and seeing all the medical components of that and how those copays and other pieces that go into that kind of sick care, if we were investing the money that we pay to go to the doctor in our food and in our well-being, what a difference that could make. Amen, brother. See, that was a very radical idea maybe three or four years ago. But as we really start to self-expose towards the medical system and realize that, you know, the rates of healing aren't really that great. And the preventative care in the medical system we have is nothing. And what I really struggle with as an herbalist is really to get people into the position of if you try to transform now, a little goes a long way. So for example, you know, a half a teaspoon of turmeric every single day, you know, in 40 years is going to completely drastically change the trajectory of someone who lived off a microwave their whole life. And uh, it really is that little bit at a time, you know. Then I still would like to touch on medicine, but you've gone to another place that from this conversation really is having quite an impact on me in this long-term approach that you take, that it's about spending months or even years with a plant before we make use of it, that it's that half teaspoon of turmeric every day in order to be paid back in 40 years. And that I feel sometimes that because many of us are transitioning from a fast-paced culture that, you know, if we can't have it yesterday, we need to have it now. And you've given a very long-term perspective. And I was wondering if you could speak more about how you arrived at that place and why that has such value to you in this process. Well, number one, we have to realize, I, I, I fully see that what's going on right now is biology. It, this is the churning of the slow growth of biology. And that's always how it goes. And I think we need to just keep ourselves into perspective that we're still in the game of ecological uh, diversity, genetic sharing. Um, and now it seems that we've actually turned our next level into sort of culture sharing as if nature does the biology thing and this mind that's arisen from nature that we now possess is sort of doing a culture share and as we see you know the the monkey turn to the human or something we can also see that the human now can transition out of an old way and into a new way by basically the spreading and the slow sharing of genetic information, so to speak, on the form of ideas. And this is kind of seen in memes, right? The meme is sort of this idea. And so every bit of information and every dollar that's being spent is the slow churning of sort of the evolution or the growth of this planetary purpose. Sounds like a slow revolution. Well, you know, it's funny that you're saying that because I don't really see another option because as I've tried to sort of be the most effective person in trying to create change, I've realized that if I have anxiety and I rush or I feel aggressive or I feel angry or I feel preachy or I have all these energies within my being, I actually stop it more than I help it. And so, you know, it really comes to this inner process of really being able to just hug everybody into it, or at least whoever's willing or interested. And so I really feel that uh, no matter how things will go, we'll either go down in a circle and the, the rest of the people will pull us down, but at least we will have fun doing it versus, uh, you know, this slow churning that overtakes the society we live in and this is what we know we're at the crux of before i came to have this interview with you i was having a conversation with someone about you know the mainstreaming of permaculture and how can it reach more people and it was a 
about how the work that I'm doing today is not for me or for even for my children or grandchildren or the generations that I'll know, but for the generations that will be born after I'm gone. And, you know, coming out of a permaculture design course all full of fire and wanting to see, you know, this great change overnight, that the only revolutions that I'm really familiar with have all not ended well for the people who have been involved in them when it's been radical and that a nice, long, slow cultural shift is the best way that we can do well by ourselves and everyone else around us. Yeah, I mean, essentially, if we're talking about building a new economy or something, we have to drown the old one by completely reducing the money we put into it. That's all it will take. It's, it's nothing but a logistical issue. So literally, every individual who wants a revolution just needs to slowly change their bank book, you know, from $1 spent here to $1 spent there. Um, and really, that would just slowly transform and change the situation. What I've come to realize within my own self is that Capitalism is not in control of the society. The society is in control of capitalism. Since we're not in what I would call a democracy, you know, we have something very different, which I will uh, leave nameless. What we have is more of a situation where money is determining power in this structure. Um, so that's actually a very big empowerment if we stop being distracted by voting for one character or another, but really realize that every dollar that we spent is a vote. And if we could really become empowered on that level and start turning our dollars instead into trading chestnuts for dandelion greens, then all the more better. And if we could, again, Biodiversity is the lesson, right? So if we can diversify our income sources and really get into a situation where we're creating resilience and stability of calories, of energy, then, you know, it's only a matter of time before the better idea overtakes the old idea. Garden a little more, forge a little more, reconnect with ourselves, our community and the natural world and slowly kind of remove all the nutrients that the current economic system uses. Yeah, yeah, the parasitic, uh, you know, there's parasites and we have to do a slow parasitic cleanse and those parasites are in the form of ideas, you know, oh, well, I'm hungry, I need to go here, there, you know, all these things. Uh, it's too expensive, oh, I can't do this, you know. I actually thought in a dream last night I was speaking with someone and I actually uttered this kind of idea saying, um, the only reason it's more expensive now is because we forgot to make that normal. <laughs> we didn't hold the fact that organic food is just food, and we allowed that to slip away slowly. So now we have to just uh, really get back to the situation where it's not a, a thing, you know? Like, it's ridiculous to pay more for organic, which essentially ends up being less things to do, you know? But uh, that's where we're at because it's a trendy thing. So people are charging more money just because it has a nice sticker on it. And that opens up an entirely different conversation about whether or not that sticker actually has value for people or the ecosystem. Yeah, well, I really try to urge people that an industry is never going to provide the ethic that essentially we as small communities need to uh, engage in. So again, having more conversation about what is ethical, what is wildcrafting, what is, what is ethical interaction with the ecosystem, and how can we reduce our large, our oversized kind of necessity reach and that doesn't mean it needs to be an extreme thing. So as I was speaking with a friend once, he mentioned, you know, if everyone was on 70-30, so 70% local and even 30% crazy exotic coconut water and all that, that would solve the issue in an instant because really it's just there's so much excess and there's so much of it that that would even be a huge dent. And it's not extreme, you know, it doesn't need to be so extreme. And cases of all the extreme, I mean, you know, 
look at all the revolutions that have happened in the last even five years and none of them seem to be in a, in a better situation than they were in. So I highly urge all Americans to make the revolution about our dollar spending, not about getting in the streets and whining and then going to this place and purchasing the thing that we were just protesting. It's... Oh, it's so funny to me because of all the times that I've seen that and, oh, the arguing about we shouldn't do this and we shouldn't do that, but then everybody's on our smartphones and our different pieces of tech, you know, concerned about privacy, but then sending emails and tweets and everything that are easily readable by anyone in the know. That's the thing where I would just recommend that nature has everything under control and that nature is so much bigger than we assume. And actually, the collectivity of all the species on the earth is a grand council and they have a lot more to say about this issue than we're giving them credit. And I think that that's going to start to dawn on us more and more as we engage. And so if you look at indigenous people saying like, oh, you know, Mother Earth talks to us and all the plants talk to us and we're like, oh, that's so cute, you you foolish people. Like, we're so smart, we're rationalists. Eventually, as we engage deeper and deeper into the ecosystem, we're going to realize that there's, there's some sort of voice there. There's some sort of presence that we've overlooked. The alien is here. <laughs> and essentially, we're going to realize that there is a guiding voice from the ecosystem. And that essentially is tapped into our intuition and our instinct. But we have to dust off all of the doubt that we've brought into our culture. And that's really what the lack of connection with nature is. It's the doubt. You know, it's the sinner. It's the fallen from Eden. It's all that mixed up to I'm not worthy to have a sacred interaction with the ecosystem. But once we can really clear all that drama and all that damage off, we can see clearly that this body is somehow in service of the ecosystem. And that births, that births a sane economic model, which is that, oh, if I keep taking more than I put back, I end up killing my grandchildren. You know, it's not a complex issue. It's very simple. It's basic economics, you know. I've been engaged in some conversations where it's about how we can't use economics to value the natural world. But that's, I mean, from a from a law and policy perspective, from some of the things that I've studied, that's a lot of ways the only way that we can engage the the conversation is to talk in, you know, let's talk about the things that don't make sense by talking about dollars and cents. Yeah, well, this is where uh, a friend and I are stuck on this idea of dollaries. The name sucks, and we definitely need a better name. But basically, the problem is that we don't equate calories spent the same we do as dollars spent. And so the value of a product is not incorporated into energy spent to make or ship or import or export or time spent making that object you know so you learn this really quickly if you're homesteading or something and you go out there and you are chopping your own firewood for the winter and you're like man that's a lot of flapjacks that i just spent you know chopping that wood down and therefore i need more food and then it's a deep cycle of understanding that calories or energy is being converted over and over and if you don't have the source of energy and if you're not producing more calories than you're putting out, do you know what happens? You die. You know, that's the basic rule of nature is that if a bird is flying around, yapping its head off and not eating enough to be able to maintain its ability to do that, it will die. You know, so that is the basic of, of economics. But we don't have a way to translate energy spent by effort into how much money it costs you know and this is a big issue too with like growing your own vegetables that's time but don't forget to add that time into the the amount of vegetables and so that's either time you're going to spend at a job getting money to buy those vegetables or that's time you're going to spend in your backyard there goes your gym subscription because now you don't need a gym subscription anymore because now you're getting exercise and so the conversion of time and money 
you know, if they say that time is money, that also means that money can be converted back into time. I could spend a lot of time on this segment of our conversation, but we're running short on time today. So I would like to move us to plants as medicine in order to move us towards the end of at least this round of the interview. I think I'd definitely like to have you back on to talk some more about this. But if you could speak with us about plants as medicine and personal health through foraging, I'd really appreciate that. Well, I guess the first thing that comes up for me and the kind of revelation that I've had over the years is that, you know, Neanderthals or primitive man or whatever whatever time frame you want to look at, you know, they weren't seeing a sprig of cilantro on their quinoa. They were eating a head of cilantro as dinner, you know, and that's what medicine is. And so over the years, what I've really tried to kind of help all of my friends, clients, students, get into is the idea of getting more used to consuming more amounts of especially fresh herbs but even dried herbs that the taste sensation can be stretched over time like a meditative practice and that the dosage required on herbs if they're going to compare to pharmaceuticals has to be very high because plants are not disembodied as pharmaceuticals are. Plants have bodies and that body is in the form of cellulose. It is not a refined chemical and that's actually much better for us because obviously plants um, have, so a yarrow plant has a thousand chemicals isolated from it. And of course it would be very silly to say that okay 999 of those chemicals do nothing and are just genetic junk this one chemical is the thing that does something. Because if you notice in our history, every single time we get that mentality, we create drastic side effects or addiction. Uh, the greatest example of that is with coca. Uh, one of the greatest examples, you could chew coca leaves until you vomit green material, but you wouldn't feel high at all. If someone refined it then and they make cocaine, that becomes one of the worst drugs on the planet. The same is true for uh, just about every synthetic chemical that we make where the plant would just make you throw up or feel full in your belly. <laughs> it has its own mechanism, which is its own body. Uh, so these are really important factors, I feel. It gives us a whole body, whole plant, holistic approach to medicine. Yeah, it sure does. And again, this kind of thing about the sentience, uh, the plant is sentient. It, it has the ability to do different things for different people based on different needs. And this is even scientifically shown um, that when someone is engaging with a plant and has a relationship with that plant, this actually can change the chemistry of the plant or at least help the plant rearrange the chemistry of itself. So this is, again, something that's so important, uh, and it's maybe the concept of allies. So everybody has plant allies. We don't know why. We could say, if we want to be rationalists, we can say, oh, that's because, you know, you as a European ancestor were in a location where dandelions were always growing. So essentially what that means is that you have more dandelion genetics built into your genome and your body than you do whatever, McDonald's, uh, all these things. And so maybe that's why it helps activate in a different way and create receptors. You know, we just have more receptor sites for certain plants, and that may be why they're more active for some people. Um, along with that is the idea that some people taste soap uh, in cilantro, for example, because there's some sort of issue with the receptors. It's interesting both the reductionist approach to breaking things down into individual constituents and also taking the broad knowledge that comes from our cultures and the different ways that our societies have grown over the years in relationship with different plants and different animals and how our biosphere was our home once. But now, because we build 
and think of ourselves as man, as woman, as humanity, as something separate from nature, that we disconnect ourselves not only from that world, but also those stories and the knowledge that comes with it. Yeah. And then to tie that all together, though, perhaps we're becoming a new human in the sense of now we do have this global reach. And and literally, if you are what you eat and that nature is is telling us that biodiversity is key, then the ability to have the deep outreach towards all these new foods and medicines is actually building a new genome from the start to the end. I mean, this is really going to transform uh, the neurons in the body. This is going to transform how we build ourselves and, and next generations. As we continue to have slow change throughout humanity as we uh, as we continue to evolve in step with nature slow change through more local organic turmeric being grown <laughs> i think i could sit here and talk with you dan until long after i should pick up my children today do you have any final thoughts for the listeners for this conversation you know along the lines of the food thing and and making food our medicine and just blending that line um, what I've realized is with a simple food processor, basically you have, you know, salsa, you have tabbouleh, you have blended liquidy kind of stuff, and you can get into salad. And I think that whatever it is, if you take an herb and you put it in the right consistency frame, you can get a lot more into your system than you would be uh, thinking you would. So if you love salsa, try to make stinging nettle salsa, even if it means open the jar, put it in your food processor or blender and add some stinging nettles into it and then tolerate, quote unquote, the fact that you've just infused it with medicine. So one of the things I'm always trying to do is get people that usually have a habitual style of consumption, look at your habits and then just see, can I sneak more tonifying nutritive herbs into my diet that way and just get used to kind of playing with the flavors a little bit so do you have any other herbs or spices you'd recommend people start working on integrating well i kept mentioning turmeric which of course you know there can be definitely some non-local issues but hopefully more farmers are going to pick up on uh, the wonderful need for turmeric so we can get off of kind of the you know, reliance on exotics as much, but, you know, stinging nettles are profound and a profound adaptogenic medicine. Oh boy. I mean, I love ashwagandha. I love gotu cola. I love some of the Ayurvedic herbs, but basically a very simple thing would be to look at tonifying herbs and any of them eat on a regular basis, try to make them food. And then there's a class of herbs called adaptogenic herbs. And these are herbs that we see that in Chinese medicine and Ayurveda, people are taking daily to tonify themselves. Um, so I would definitely recommend at least people trying to consume uh, nutritive herbs, you know, dandelions, uh, stinging nettle, all these plants, and try to get a daily adaptogen into your system. And this will really help uh, in the long-term scale of how the body uh, evolves over time. Well, thank you for everything that you've shared with us today. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. It was nice to sit down and have this chat after going back and forth for so long to get it set up. So thank you very much for joining me, Dan. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate the opportunity. And that was Dan DeLion. You can find out more about him and his work at returntonature.us. Check out his schedule of upcoming classes, and if you can get a chance, consider taking one. I really want to go and sit with him for a day and document one of his classes and get more information about what it is that he does. I was really captivated and fascinated by the conversation that we had today. One of the points that stuck with me is that we are all still members of the natural world, even as much as we may feel separated from it at times. We can use foraging and permaculture to reconnect to natural systems and cycles by shifting our time and energy away from commercial production and the consumer and aesthetics that we may be tied into currently, and instead focus on nourishing traditions of food and community. Along the way, we can foster relationships with plants so that as much as we use them, they use us to scatter seed and disturb soil. As we improve our understanding of the natural world by building up our mental database of plants, including their uses, we foster knowledge and ethics that allow us to move more intentionally 
through our actions, which encourages ever slower and smaller solutions. As I mentioned during the interview, permaculture and the change necessary to make a lasting difference will take lifetimes to be delivered upon and be seen by the generations that we will never meet. But we must begin today if we haven't already. I'll be reposting Matt Winter's The Gift for release this Saturday, March 7th, for folks to listen to as a reminder of the get-rich-slowly approach we should have when making design choices. And as we live more intentionally, that includes what it is we put into our bodies as food and medicine. In the resources section of this show, you will also find links to Arthur Haynes, Sam Thayer, Steve Brill, and the other field guides that Dan suggested. I'm also going to include links to the interviews I recorded with Arthur and Sam as they round out the conversation with Dan. If there's any way that I can assist you on your path, please get in touch. Call 717-827-6266. Email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. Write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. You can also follow the show on Twitter at PermacultureCST or join in the conversations at Facebook at facebook.com slash the permaculture podcast. During the introduction to each show, I say that this podcast is listener supported, and it truly is. In 2015, I embraced the gift economy as a way to keep the show going, and I need your help to keep it on the air. If you would like to make a one time donation, Use the button on the podcast page at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com if you would like to join a community of supporters making ongoing donations and see how close I am to reaching the goal of producing the show full-time. You can do that at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast. By signing up there, you can receive episodes early as well as other subscriber-only benefits. Finally, Jen Mendez of permikids.com who I will be interviewing and getting interviewed by in turn in a few weeks, has an upcoming Edge Alliance on Sunday, March 29, 2015, from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Join Jen to discuss rites of passage for young children and see how those can be used to help children transition through the various stages of childhood. Next week, I return with an interview with Stephen Barstow, author of Around the World in 80 Plants. Until then, spend each day making the world a better place by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.